All right, so we are on part three of the October q and I've got my tea. Let's get settled in and let's get going straight into it. Really good question by Evernew23. He asks, if I want to get strong, is it better to have hypertrophy and strength phases specifically, or should I just add some maxes in all of the time? Really good question because it's unusually loaded with quite a lot of possibilities. For the first part of your question, I completely agree. One of the things I wish I had done a lot more of when I was competitive was to have specific hypertrophy phases across the year where I essentially did bodybuilding. That would have done me the world of good. I continued and persisted with a lot of strength training all throughout the year. I was on a good run, so of course, you chase those highs and it was fine, but it ended up being quite injurious towards the end because I was just chasing constantly, chasing poundages. So I think a period of time where you let your gains, you increase your muscle mass and you put a bit of less stress on your ligaments, tendons, joints, perhaps change your exercises that you're using. Some more joint friendly exercises would be good. I think that would have been awesome. It would have been really good. But it's tough to sell that to people because once you're in the middle of things, it can be rough. Now, I specifically remember it was about 2010 and I had just finished doing my bodybuilding full body phase. And that's the, I wrote the book about that, the, uh, the wizard book. And I went to powerlifting. And I remember in 2010, I promised myself, I'm going to spend half the year doing full body, high volume hypertrophy training, and then half the year doing strength training didn't work out. <laughs> I just ended up chasing strength. But I wish I had done more of the hypertrophy stuff. I think I would have had better longevity to do that. Now, so in short, yes, you also ask about adding in maxes all the time. It's a good question. I'm not a massive fan of maxes for anything really. I didn't do a massive amount when I was training. So even during my strength phases, I didn't really max very often. If you get quite strong, you can't max very often. It's just too much on the body. If you're really strong, it's way too much. So I wouldn't recommend that. The style of training, which I have some of my strength guys on is more of a conjugate system, the hybrid conjugate system between linear block and conjugate. And within that paradigm, you can max, but it's maxing on different exercises and very infrequently. So yeah, there is there are ways of maxing, but I just want to be clear on that. Maxing out is not the route to strength. <laughs> it's not. Most of the time I was doing over warmups. So they're, they're definitely not maxes. But I think if you're a powerlifter and, or if you're training for strength, you should have the ability to express your strength. So as a powerlifter, I was looking to express that with a one rep max. So I wanted to remain familiar with how to do a one rep max without actually completely doing it. So I would do singles as an over warm up. So as an example, if I was repping with three plates on the bench, I might over warm up with 150. So or 330 pounds. Okay. So slightly over, but not a max. It would be done only to potentiate the reps. So it's important to, to say this, the reps are what build strength. Like primarily you should stay familiar with the single reps, how to set up, how to execute a single rep you definitely don't need to max all the time and that can be a route to injury great question really good good one to start off with now meme bear 
asks, what do you think about training frequency as a trend physiology thing these days? And I asked him for clarification because I wasn't sure what he meant, but he followed up by saying training frequency is discussed by some Instagram researchers like Chris Beardsley and Menno Henselman. And so I get it. Say no more. I understand. I went over to Menno's page and he does really recommend high frequency training. That's his kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. In my experience, high frequency has been quite useful in accumulating a lot of volume across the week. When I was doing my more advanced versions of the wizard routine, the full body hypertrophy routine, I did them because I could stack a lot of volume. So I was doing full body five, six days a week with up to 30 sets per body part. So it was useful. However, I don't think Menno does that. I think Menno does moderate volume. I think I remember from one interview, he said he was doing two sets per body per session. So that is seven days a week, 14 sets per week. So that could, it's an interesting way of doing things. That for me personally, I'm not sure how satisfying two sets per day would be. It's certainly not going to be junk volume. It should be useful. You'd be able to focus on it. But I would personally favor at least four to five sets per session. I think there's a sessional limit as well, a sessional minimal, minimum and a sessional limit. So I've, I long, I've long thought this. I remember when the MPS research came out in 2015, my big question at the time was, surely there must be a sessional minimum that you have to hit, a minimum threshold you have to hit to actually see gains per session. Because I experimented with the higher thresholds of volume and the higher thresholds of frequency. I personally found when I was doing two or three sets per session and training even as much as five days a week, with full body, I just didn't feel like I gained as well. I There was a certain minimum threshold of volume per session that I felt you needed to hit. So I think frequency is fine, but it is intimately tied with overall volume in my experience. That's what I think. I know Mena would disagree. I think he's perfectly fine doing a very low amount of volume per session, but just accumulating good degree of volume throughout the week. And in theory, it makes sense, but in practice, for me, it didn't give me the same results. I needed about four or five sets per session. So hence why most of the time I will hit a body part two or three times a week. But yeah, really good question. That one got me thinking. <laughs> so thank you. All right. Next is Jason with a similar question. He says, thoughts on training with more exercises with less sets per exercise while equating total volume. So this is like the, uh, the Jordan Peters approach of the guy from England. He does this, the, uh, couple of sets, top set, back offset on multiple exercises. It's fine. My issues with it are more of a practical nature because once I've warmed up, then I do two sets and that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I have to unload the machine. I have to go to the next machine. Possibly somebody's on that machine. I have to wait for them to finish or work in. And then I have to load that machine up and then I have to take all that weight off. So yeah, my, my issue would be one of focus. Like you're wasting quite a lot of time in the practicalities of loading and unloading the weight. You can imagine if I was doing a leg press and I've got it loaded up to four or five plates, do I really want to do one or two sets and go home or go to the next station? Not really. Once I'm loaded up on the leg press, I want to stay there for 20 minutes. If I'm going to load 200 kilos onto a machine, then I don't want to just do two sets. I want to do a few sets. So 
that would be my issue. You mentioned that theoretically this would induce better hypertrophic stimulus from a variety of different exercises. Maybe, maybe, but then how much of that is splitting hairs? Because in my experience, and as is evidenced by the research, most of the benefit is work hard and then volume. That's the magnitude of stress, as I always say. I think volume is probably the biggest lever you can pull. I don't think exercise selection is ultimately going to be that much of an issue. And then if you think about it as well, how quickly do you expect to grow? So you can take advantage of all these exercises over the course of a year. You don't have to do them within the week because how much are you going to grow, right? Week to week. So as long as across the course of the year, you're using a wide variety of exercises, I don't think it's necessary to do them all the time. You also miss out on the novelty effects because you're always doing those exercises. So you never give them a rest. So you never get the novelty effect. So yeah, overall, I don't like it to be honest, Jason, but thank you for the question. S Davis says, my upper traps are a lagging body part, but I'm unable to do shrugs due to the exercise flaring up an old shoulder injury. I've tried using light loads, but it just seems the shrugs aren't a good fit. What lift would be a good substitute? I was thinking chest supported rows with elbows high. Interesting. Yeah, I think I've got pretty outrageous traps not to like brag or anything, but my tra my traps are pretty ridiculous. And what grew my traps the most 10 years ago was just a lot of deadlifting, lots of deadlifting, stiff leg deadlifts, deficit stiff leg deadlifts, regular deadlifts, partial deadlifts, just a lot of deadlifting. So that's what I would recommend. Just a lot of deadlifting. If you can't shrug, it's one of those areas, which is it's relatively easy to build up for most people. It's not an area where people generally lag. So I'm surprised because most people don't really have that issue. But yeah, no, I get it. I would just encourage you to continue to load the deadlift exercise. I don't think you need to do anything particularly special. Load the deadlift exercise, load it properly. Now I did release a quick Instagram clip about a rarewood shrug movement that I do regularly and I have done for many years. So check out my Instagram for that. that will work the upper traps as well as the entire upper back. And it's a great variation. So it's also one that you can do with shoulder injuries. And it's also one which is actually very good for the shoulder joint. So it's something to look at. I did a video about it as well many months ago. Anyway, thank you for the question. All right. Inti Castro says, what lifting gear is worth buying? As in straps, squat shoes, belt, etc. <laughs> I've got all of those things. So yeah, so I, I have got straps, lifting straps, because they're very useful. I don't think you should let your grip limit your upper back training for 100%. And people tend to overblow the negative effects of straps anyway. When I was at my strongest, when I was lifting my heaviest deadlifts, I could double overhand a 220 kilo deadlift, a five plate side deadlift, easy. It wasn't a problem. So it's not like your grip does nothing. The way some people talk about straps is as soon as you wear straps, your forearms completely disengage, but that's not true. Your forearms are still working. The point is just don't let your forearms limit your overall strength of your back. So yeah, I would definitely use straps. Squat shoes are great. They're great. Most people don't have particularly flexible calves. So squat shoes eliminate the reliance on calf flexibility for a good squat. So they're great. 
my squat shoes were a gift from a client, which was lovely. And God bless her. I think she spent quite a lot of money on them. They were like 180 pounds back in the day, but they're great. They still look brand new. I still use them. They're the ones that I use. And so I do recommend squat shoes. You can get squat shoes of varying prices these days, as cheap as 30, 40 pounds and right up to 200 pounds and above if you want to spend money on them. But they, squat shoes are great. For the first 10 years of competition, my squat shoes were a 30 pound pair of dough wins. So you don't need anything special, but yeah, squat shoes are recommended. A belt, yes, belt's useful, very useful. I tend to wear a belt more often these days because I had a lower back injury a couple of years ago from an unrelated incident on, on just from a biking incident. So yeah, I think belts are quite good, but when I was powerlifting, generally I didn't wear a belt most of the time. I wore a belt in the lead up to a competition, but most of the year I didn't really wear a belt. My idea was to strengthen my lower back. I don't know how true that is. I think if you wear a belt, it can generally help you with bracing. So I was a bit dogmatic about that when I was younger, but now I would wear the belt. So yeah, I think belts are worth getting. In terms of other things, honestly, that is exactly what I have in my bag. So that's it. I wear my squat shoes to the gym. I get in the car, drive in my squat shoes. My straps are in the bag. My lip belt is in the bag. And that's all I have. Apart from a camera stand to record lifting videos for you guys. That's it. That's all I have. So I suppose you could possibly invest in some chalk or liquid chalk. Maybe. Possibly a good idea. But with straps, you're pretty much set. Some people prefer VersaGrips. I don't really get on with Versa grips. I think they're a bit awkward. I like the old school straps myself, but either one, just something to help your grip. doesn't really matter which one you get, either straps or Versa grips. Okay. So but a good question. Thank you. All right. So we have a question from It's Vibes. Thank you for that. If that is your real name, what do you think about the ancestral diet and what diet do you have? Okay. So good question. Now, the ancestral diet, it's, it's quite tricky to discuss the ancestral diet because there's no strict definition of what it is. It is just this sort of vague, fairly arbitrary notion of this is what our ancestors ate. You ask one person, it could be something else. You ask another person, it could be something else. What I will say though is the concept of an ancestral diet is used to sell books and get likes and get clicks. For that reason and that reason alone, I am dubious. I would urge everyone, rather than get their dietary information from like people on Instagram who are topless and eat testicles, to get their information from actual medical sources, because diet is something which has been studied really well. We know a lot about diet and so, most of what large health organizations recommend is actually very good advice if people actually followed it because most most of them recommend high amounts of fruits and vegetables legumes grains all that kind of fruits and vegetables grains all that kind of stuff so something like the dash diet is quite good just general government guidelines are actually really good if people followed them the problem is people don't follow them a very a very common sort of stereotype is the overweight or previously overweight guy who got fat via eating a lot of processed food and now is on a agenda to, um, to trash the government recommendations. But people are quite silly with that kind of stuff. They didn't follow the government guidelines to get obese. And then they find this new diet on the internet, which blames the government for trying to make us fat. 
And then they're all on board with saying, yeah, the government are trying to get us fat. But it wasn't the government who got you fat in the first place. It was pizza and burgers. I think I wouldn't, I'm not sure specifically about the ancestral diet because again, it has no definition. But I would just recommend you listen to large health organizations with credible scientists who have put years of their life into giving us good recommendations and actually follow them. If you do that, you'll be fine. Now, in terms of what diet I follow, I don't really have a name for it. I just eat what I eat. But um, I suppose the closest, it's tough to say. The, pro the problem with telling people about what, putting a name on what you do is people label you as that guy. I did release a video on what I eat probably just a couple of months ago. So if you'd like to know a bit more about specifically what I eat, I'd urge you to have a look at that video. Because I think if I try, if I try to label my diet, then people will just label me as that guy. And nowadays, it's, we, we are so used to labels. People will either love you or dismiss you based on a label, rather than look into the details of what you're actually doing. So rather than put a label on it, because I don't think my diet really follows a label, it's just my diet, it's just the way I eat. I would recommend you check out that video. Okay, cool. All right, Lucas de Oliveira Nascimento. I think I got that name right. I'm quite proud of myself. He says, have you ever done direct adductor work? When is it necessary and how much? My answer to that is I have. So the first question, is it necessary? Maybe. How much? Depends. So let me give you some detail on that. Essentially, anytime you're doing a leg pressing or a squatting motion and you're going deep enough, you will initiate the adductors. The adductors will help. Okay. One of the big things, and one of my recent clients, he's a new guy, he started with me. He had previously been doing half squats, partial squats. So he came to me and I looked at his form because I do form checks quite regularly. And uh, it was very clear he wasn't going all the way down. So I asked him to reduce the weight, go further down. And all of a sudden he's fuzz. My adductors are getting sore. Ah, there you go. So have I ever done it? Yes, I have, but not for very long. Is it necessary? It's not necessary if you're using a full range of motion on your squatting and leg pressing movements. It might be necessary if you don't like to go all the way down for some reason. But then I guess what I, the way I would answer that is, why not just go deeper on the squats and leg presses? If you're going deep on the squats and leg presses, it's just better economy. You're going you're gonna to use the adductors, you're going to use the glutes more, as well as still using the quads. And maybe even using the quads better as well. Also, it's less weight, so it's, there's less axial loading, there's less potential for the ligament to go snap. And so I think there's no real reason not to go deeper on the leg press and the squatting motions because that will take care of the adductor work. Like right now, my legs are pretty big. If you go to my Instagram, there's a recent, actually the, the post for this Q&A was a picture of my legs. And you can see they're pretty big, they're in decent shape. I don't do any adductor work at all. I just squat deep, I leg press deep. So I don't think it's necessary if you are squatting and leg pressing properly. Yeah. Okay, where are we? Okay. Okay, all right. This was a really good question from Ayan. Ayan, he asked me a few times about this question. 
and he was talking about the essentially the problem he seems to have is I think his family are mostly vegetarian and he wants to eat meat because he feels like it's better for him now this is we can look at this from a greater perspective as well how do you manage your diet when you have a family unit who either don't like that way of dieting or don't understand it because I had this issue as well. So when I was getting ready for my contest prep in 2018, my bodybuilding show, it was a very unusual experience for my mother and my sister-in-law. So obviously your family, they just love you. They want you to be happy. And when it came to the last few months of the diet, I had my food and it wasn't very satisfying. As you could imagine, when you're six to eight weeks out, your diet is not very fun. It was basically just a lot of vegetables, chicken, some rice, some potatoes, that kind of stuff, right? And so they would constantly be asking me, are you okay? Do you want that food? I can make you something else. Let me make you something else. And so obviously you, you appreciate their, their love and care the first time they ask. But the second time they ask and the third time and the fourth time, you just want to be left alone. You just want to be like, look, just let me eat my food. You do what you're doing. Let me eat my food. So it can turn into one of the situations where if you're at a family event, you know, you're with the, you're there at some kind of like whatever, and they can just ask a lot of questions and you're sat there thinking, look, I'm six weeks out. I know my food isn't great. Okay. Yes. I would rather have a pizza. No, I'm not going to. And I'm, my food is very carefully measured out. I need to have this. And you just don't want to talk about it. You just don't want to talk about food because your diet's insufficient because that's the point you're trying to get shredded. So, yeah, my solution to that was firstly, avoid getting frustrated. I think it can be frustrating, but avoid getting frustrated. My solution to that was to have an open and honest talk with them. Say, look, I am contest prepping. I know this is new to you. Yes, I look tired. I'm okay though. Don't worry about me. Just let me do this for another few weeks and then I will be able to eat out at restaurants. I'll be able to eat all your food, all that kind of stuff. So have a conversation with your family and just let them understand what you're trying to do. Now, the comment I said to Ayan previously was regarding eating meat. Like it's not absolutely necessary to eat meat for your bodybuilding goals. So if that's your only problem, you may need to relent a little bit there and just say, okay, I'll have what you guys are having. I don't think it's massively necessary. I still eat fish. Occasionally I'll eat meat, but it's not, you have to also make sure that you're not the one that's being unreasonable here. Your family just love you. They care for you. They want you to be happy. The same with mine. When my mother sees me tired and I can hardly keep my eyes open and I'm eating nothing but chicken and plain whatever for the last four weeks of the diet, then obviously she's concerned. She wants me to be happy. She doesn't care about my show. She cares about her son, but it's just a case of having a conversation with them to say, look, it's tough. I get it. My food sucks. I get it. I also need to stick to what I'm doing because I have a goal. So it may be worth you having a conversation, but also you have to understand when you are the awkward one rather than them. Okay. So thank you for the question though. It's a good one. Overall, I just feel like when it comes to your bodybuilding goals, you do need to try and include your family as much as possible. And if what you're doing is just so alien, then maybe you're the one not on the right track. You might have to consider that. Okay. Okay. Next question is Christian Samuels. He says, 
How do you get to the point of being okay with a weak phase? Rather, how do you listen to your body that tells you today, close to failure is only 75% of what it was the session yesterday when the voices say you should go harder. Christian, I would really look at your programming. If you're losing 25% strength and you expect to be that strong, but you're just not, I would probably look at your programming. I can share with, I can reshare with you a short story of when I was a lot younger. This was my third year of training. So I was training. I had already been a competitive powerlifter for a couple of years and I kept hitting a wall. Either I would get a cold or I couldn't lift as much. And I was pretty strong at that point. I was closing in on three plate bench, four plate squat, five plate deadlift. But every now and again, I would have a weak phase. I emailed Dan John. Everybody knows the story. I'll say it again. I emailed Dan John and I said, look, Dan, this is the problem. And I'm, I was just some kid from England and he was this big star in, over in America. And he got back to me within three hours, just emailed me back, and gave me a really good tip about my training. He said, look, Faz, what I want you to do is I want you to go back through your training, have a look at it and see if you can find a pattern for when you get these weak phases. And I was like, okay, Dan, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. So I was like, really, really enthusiastic. He must've written just a paragraph. And I was like, this is gold. So I had paper logs, loads of paper training logs. So I went through all my paper logs and slowly I started to see a trend. Every few weeks I would hit a wall. I was like, okay, this is it. So I emailed him back. I was like, Dan, every third week, something happens. He's like, okay, Faz, there you go. There's your answer. The answer was in your books all along. So what I want you to do is take a deload every third week. Great. Don't change anything else. Take a deload every third week. And so that's what I did. And I preempted that week phase. And so that actually, that piece of advice started me off on one of the best strength runs I've probably ever had. In the next 18 months, my lifts went up dramatically. It culminated in a five plate over three plate bench and about five and a half plate deadlift, I think. So yeah, this, use it as a learning point, Christian. Perhaps your body's trying to tell you something. Look back and see if you can find a pattern and use deloads appropriately. Okay, this was a really good question. So we'll end on this. HN Drums says, we all know building muscle is a very slow process. What are the best ways to know what actually works for an individual? There are usually multiple variables happening within a program. How does one know what is working, what doesn't, and when to change a variable? So HN Drums, I'm going to let you into a bit of how I coach. Okay. So I've been a coach now for eight years. And obviously I have my own training prior to that, been coaching, been training for 22 years at this point. God, I feel old. But anyway, I've got the coaching process down pretty well. So the way that I work is I work in blocks of training. I actually got this from my previous profession. I used to be a school teacher. And when you're an educator, when you're a teacher, you typically have a whole syllabus, you know, a, a curriculum of work for a year or for two years for a given subject. And that curriculum has the goal of getting you up to scratch to be able to pass an exam. Now, within that curriculum, you have multiple syllabuses, which are responsible for tackling different areas. And they're usually broken up into six or seven or eight week blocks. Okay. Starting to sound familiar. And so the goal for those blocks is to have a period of time where you execute some learning and then you test at the end. In the same way, this is how I operate with my clients. We work in blocks. Now the blocks 
from a from a physiological point of view, they don't mean much. So I do use a block system of training and I use a deload at the end, a fairly non-traditional deload. It's, but don't get hung up on that. People like love to argue about deloads, but it's not about that. It's about the block of time. Within that period of time, let's say it's six weeks, it allows me to set some goals at the beginning, okay? Goals, training, diet, rate of weight gain or rate of weight loss, specific training parameters, and then we execute for the next four, five, six weeks, okay? Now, having executed that for a period of time, we can then evaluate at the end. And also week by week, week by week, I am looking for comments. I'm looking for feedback. Okay. So you tell me, if you were working with me, I would say, Hey, week by week, give me some feedback. If it's a, let's say it's a hyper cycle. Let's say we're training for hyper for growth. I would ask you, say, look, Hey, you feedback to me. Okay. Feedback to me. Tell me which muscles feel worked across the course of the week and which muscles feel neglected. Keep feeding me back. When, when are you getting a good pump? When are you not getting a good pump? Are you getting sore at any point over the course of six weeks? Because you should be. And we back that up with training videos and conversations around diet and lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. Now, ultimately, the goal is that over the course of the block, what should become clear is what things worked and what things need to be adjusted. And that is how we do it. So we base it on how you feel, but also the other factor is performance. Did you actually gain over the course of six weeks? So firstly, did your weight go up? Did you get reliably stronger? Did your form get better? What are the factors that are going on with performance, but also with feel like the whole pump and all that stuff over the course of six weeks, what will start to become clear is we can evaluate that block of training, keep what works, take away what doesn't make some changes and go again. So that way you are always accountable. In fact, I'm always accountable as well because I want to get, I want you to get results as much as you want to get results. So we are both accountable and we are both constantly evaluating and improving. It's a very, very robust system. So there you go. I've given away all my secrets. <laughs> Clearly you go, you, don't, you guys don't need to hire me my secrets, but no, it's, it, there's more to it than that, but that is a large part of it. So that's how I would encourage you to have that sort of structure when it comes to your training and your diet or hire a coach. So I'm going to call it there because that's gone on long enough. And on that note, if you would like to support me further, love all you guys, you're fantastic. If you'd like to support me further, there are many ways to do that. If you sign up on my Patreon, you get access to my Discord. It's pretty slow at the moment, but in general, I answer questions on there if you'd like. So that's a nice way to do things. It's a good way to support me. Also, if you do want coaching, if you want somebody to guide you through this process, I have a limit on how many people I'm taking on. So I'm about three people away from that limit. When I first started coaching, I laid out how many I could cope with and handle because I like to give you all you guys my full attention. So I have a limit to how many people I can take on. YouTube has been a, an absolute blessing for me. I'm currently three away from that limit. So if you would like coaching, feel free to get in touch. There is still some room and you can be one of the one of the guys who gets in and we can work together for a while. Yes, the links are all in the description for that. But other than that, I hope you all have a wonderful day. And I'm gonna do one more QA. Next week we'll back to regular, regular topics. I've got a whole bunch of topics planned. I've got some really good ones, and uh, I will see you for the next one. So take it easy. All the best. <laughs>